0: Hello, I'm Brett Dillon and this is The Movie Chronicles. Mellow out dudes, for today we are doing a little continent hopping in 2013. The theme is biography and we begin in Japan for Kaize Tashinu, The Wind Rises, Director and Script Hayao Miyazaki, Director of Photography Atushi Okui, Editor Takashi Siyama, Music Joe Hisaishi, actors Hideka Anu, Hidatoshi Nishima, Miyori Takamoto, Mashihiko Nishimura, Manzai Nomura, Jan Kunamura, and Mirai Shida. Director Hayao Miyazaki retired with a vanity project about the Zero fighter plane and especially its architect, Jiro Hirokoshi. Hayao is interested in set pieces, like the earthquake and the fire, which is an interesting take as he presents Jiro as being barely impacted by historical events, like the Great Depression, by politics, his political focus is on Japan gaining the industrial knowledge of the West, or what his design will be used for. He only cares about designing a Great plane. By sculpting these things out of the narrative, Hayao has been accused of whitewashing Japanese aggression and Japanese World War II atrocities. In his defense, he has taken this narrative position to concentrate on the romance of Jiro with his wife and the design problems he had to overcome. There was a way to bring these things into the picture, which would have given a more nuanced view of Jiro. Hayao didn't manage to find this way, and so Jiro becomes a lifeless lump at the center of this story. Of interest, there is a short sequence where Jiro is wanted by the secret police. We never find out why. The sequence seems to exist only for the scene where the company owner tells Jiro the company will protect him. For as long as he works for the company. The company seems to shield Jiro from the economy, from the politics of the times, and from interaction with the rest of the nation. Hayao presents him as dedicated to the project, but was he really a dedicated company man? The film started as a manga Hayao published from 2009 to 10. He wanted to tell the tale of Jiro Hirakoshi, but he also incorporated elements of Tatsuo Hori's novel The Wind Has Risen, first published in 1937. The manga took the story up to 1935. After the success of Ponyo, 2008, producer Toshio Suzuki suggested that The Wind Rises be Hayao's next project. Hayao was opposed, but changed his mind when a staff member disagreed with his stand by saying children should be allowed to be exposed to subjects they are not familiar with. Critics were favourable. David Ehrlich wrote penetratingly, While initially jarring, Miyazaki's unapologetic deviations from fact help The Wind Rises to transcend the linearity of its expected structure, the film eventually revealing itself to be less of a biopic than it is a devastatingly honest lament for the corruption of beauty and how invariably pathetic the human response to that loss must be. Miyazaki's films are often preoccupied with absence, the value of things left behind, and how the ghosts of beautiful things are traced onto our memories like the shadows of objects outlined by a nuclear flash. Director Hayao Miyazaki was born on January 5, 1941, in Tokyo, Japan. Hayao's father was director of Miyazaki Airplane, a firm that manufactured rudders for fighter planes during World War II. Hayo later said he inherited his father's anarchistic feelings and his lack of concern about embracing contradictions. His memories are of bombed-out cities. A sickly child, he was not expected to live beyond the age of twenty. Hayo wanted to become a manga artist, but found he could not draw people. He drew planes, tanks, and battleships instead, and enjoyed family trips to the movies. His interest in animation began in high school with the 1958 release of Panda and the Magic Serpent, 1958, Japan's first feature-length, color, animated film. Haya went from high school to Gakushun University, and he graduated in 1963 with degrees in political science and economics. That same year, he was hired by Toei Animation as an in-between artist. And if you're thinking, what a waste of a degree, by 1964 he had become chief secretary of Taui's labor union. Although I have to admit I doubt the efficacy of a company-controlled union. By 1968 he had become a chief animator and mentored Yatsuo Otsuka. In 1969, Hau branched out by publishing some of his manga work. Hau left Taui in 1970 for Apo. Moved to Zuiyo Izo in 1973. This morphed into Nippon Animation in 1975. He left Nippon to work for Telecom Animation Film in 1979. The reason was the opportunity to direct his first animated feature film, The Castle of Cagliostro, 1979. Hayo resigned from Telecom Animation Film in 1982, partly in response to his plan to film Nausicaa of the Valley of the Wind, 1984, being squashed. The success of Nausicaa, initially an independent film production, allowed Hayo the resources to create Studio Ghibli, which soon gained a worldwide reputation for the quality of its animation. He announced his retirement soon after the release of The Wind Rises, 2013. History was like one of those inflated men in car yards blowing about in the wind. On February the 12th, North Korea is condemned for conducting its third underground nuclear test. February the 25th, Park won hai became the first woman president of North Korea. August the 15th, an explosion at the Fukichiyama. Firework Festival in Japan killed three and injured thirty-nine people. September the seventh, Tokyo, Japan was awarded the right to host the 2020 Summer Olympics. I wonder how that went. November the eighth, a typhoon hit the Philippines and Vietnam, creating a swathe of destruction, killing six thousand two hundred and forty-one people. Here are their names. Only joking. The Beatles encounter life in translation in "Vivir Es Facil con los Ojos Carrados Living is Easy with Eyes Closed Director and Script Fernando Truba Director of Photography Daniel Villar, Editor Marta Velasco Music Pat Metheny Actors Javier Camara Natalia de Molina, Francisca Coloma, Ramon Foncera, Jorge Sanz, and Adriana Gil. This film is far cleverer than it deserves to be. Semi-biographical, satirical, and in a small way, allegorical. That it works so well outside the culture that created it is a small miracle. The film opens with a quote from John Lennon that goes something like, People look to me for the answers when they are the answer. The Biography It is 1966. John Lennon is in Spain at the fag end of the Franco era to film How I Won the War. A Spanish teacher of English hunts down John Lennon to tell him that he uses Beatles lyrics in his class the band from Spanish radio, but the lyrics he gets off the radio waves are different from the published sheet music. Thereafter, the Beatles include a lyric sheet with their albums. Satirical. The teacher picks up two hitchhikers, a 20-year-old pregnant girl fleeing a baby farm, and a 16-year-old boy fleeing from his Franco-loving dad. They make friends with a barman and his handicapped son while they search for John Lennon. They also have to cope with an unintelligible hotel keeper. The Spain we see is one that only works because of little acts of rebellion. Allegorical. The tomato farmers represent fascism. Brutal, stupid, ruling through fear, and, ultimately, powerless. As the teacher says, always keep your dignity. The fascists try to take this dignity, which leads to the petty acts of rebellion. The teacher is the intelligentsia. The 20-year-old is only a baby factory in fascist ideology. The 16-year-old is the coming generation who must cope with the fall of Franco without having developed the skill set to do so. The hotel keeper represents regionalism in Spain. One region cannot understand another. The barkeep represents the Spanish concept of community and his son, the state of Spain, handicapped by fascism. The film title comes from the biographical Beatles song, Strawberry Fields Forever, where John Lennon in particular is evoking childhood memories and suggesting that things were better then, which, when you think about it, is the exact opposite of what this film is trying to evoke. The film has been something of a critic's darling, with Stephen Farber writing the film, offers a lovely evocation of Spain, as well as a touching tribute to an unforgettable moment in time when the Beatles seem to offer brand new possibilities. I would also add that the film is bittersweet. The hero, Antonio, gets a win. Director Fernando Truba knows this is the moment in time when the Beatles started to fall apart. Composer Pat Metheny was born on August twelfth, 1954, in Lees Summit, Missouri, USA. Pat had a musical family who taught him to play the trumpet. He became interested in the guitar in 1964 when he saw the Beatles perform on TV. His life soon changed as he bought his first guitar and heard Miles Davis and Where's Montgomery for the first time. After winning a scholarship to jazz camp at the age of 15, he was invited to New York to meet with Jim Hall and Ron Carter. In 1978, after a few years of session work, Pat formed the Pat Metheny Group, which quickly made waves among jazz aficionados. In 1987, he was getting involved in orchestrations for the theater projects. Actor Javier Camara was born on January the 19th, 1967, in Albalda de Iregua, Spain. Javier trained at La Theatre School and then moved to Madrid to study at RISAD, Real Escuela Superior de Arte Dramatique. He made his stage debut in 1991 and film debut in 1993. Javier is best remembered for his TV work in the 90s when he appeared in two long-running series. With the 90s behind him, he concentrated on film work. We conclude with the gay tale of hiding in plain sight, the tale of how conservatives in the USA really love gays. The story of Liberace, Behind the Candelabra, Director, Director of Photography, and Editor, Stephen Soderberg. Actors, Michael Douglas, Matt Damon, Scott Bakula, Garrett M. Brown, Debbie Reynolds, Dan Aykroyd, Bruce Ramsey, and Paul Witten. I have never understood the appeal of Liberace. I can understand the appeal of making a film about his life. There is the gay side, where he is both out there and in the closet at the same time, the commitment to music, the controlling side, the Las Vegas show kitsch, and the disintegration of the self in the search of eternal youth. Most of this is covered in Beyond the Candelabra. Director Steven Soderbergh, however, seems to want to concentrate on a gay love story, the relationship between the oversexed Liberace and Scott Thurston. It is an Alice in Wonderland tale in which Scott gets dragged into the trimmings of wealth without having to worry about its responsibilities. Wealth does come with responsibilities. Under the capitalist system, the wealthy can shift these onto the middle class. In this case, we have Liberace using his wealth and fame to hide he is gay, while in his private life, doing everything he can to expose it. This film does not examine this contradiction, nor does it follow Scott Thurston's downward plummet into drug addiction when he realizes what he wants from the relationship is something Liberace can't give him. Director Steven Soderbergh had been wanting to make a film about Liberace ever since seeing Michael Douglas' impersonation in 2000. What he couldn't do was find a way to tell the story without it becoming a conventional biopic. That is, until he read Scott Thurston's memoir. Having found his entry point, major studios kept turning the project down because it was too gay. I imagine Steven told the executives they were right. The film is about two gays. Some digital magic was used to make it look like Michael Douglas was playing the piano. The actor's head was melded onto the body of piano player Philip Fortenberry. Critics were mostly kind to the picture, with Peter Bradshaw recognising the film's tone when he wrote, As a black comedy, and as a portrait of celebrity loneliness, behind the candelabra is very stylish and effective author Scott Thurston was born on January the 23rd, 1959, in La Crosse, Wisconsin, USA. Scott is best known for his relationship with musician Liberace. In 1976, he was romancing Bob Street, who was staging the Liberace shows in Las Vegas. Through this connection, he met Liberace, who made Scott his friend and personal companion, i.e. lover. The flamboyant Liberace claimed he had more mink coats and diamonds than Elizabeth Taylor, and I'm sure he said that with a sparkle in his eye. Scott became a dancer in the show. The relationship ended five years later due to Liberace's promiscuous behavior and Scott's drug habit. In between, the star convinced Scott to have plastic surgery so he could pass Scott off as his son. Scott was later to write that Liberace was both generous and possessive. The end was far from pleasant. Scott sued the star for $113 million, part of which was for palimony, continuing the lie of being Liberace's son. Liberace claimed Scott was a disgruntled ex-employee, a liar, a gold digger, and that they had never had a sexual relationship a revelation on par with Bill Clinton's, I never had sex with that woman. Liberace won the case, in a sense, as he only had to pay out $75,000, lose three cars and three dogs. The pair reconciled shortly before Liberace's death in 1987. The next year, Scott published his book, Behind the Candelabra, My Life with Liberace. Director Steven Soderbergh was born on January the 14th, 1963, in Atlanta, Georgia, USA. As a teenager, Steven studied at Louisiana State University Laboratory School before graduating and moving to Hollywood to make films. He was lucky enough to find work as a film editor. This brought him to the attention of the rock group Yes, who assigned him to direct their concert video, 9012 Live, in 1985. He got two Grammy nominations for that work. He followed that up by writing the script for Sex, Lies, and Videotape, 1989, which ushered in the golden age of independent film in the USA. His output over the next decade did not live up to the hype. This ended when he directed *Aaron Brokovich* 2000. Thinking about this transition later, Stephen said, The reason my career took such a left turn at a certain point was because I realized I was in danger of becoming a formalist, but that wasn't the best representation of me, even as a person. It's easy to fall into that because it's a very isolated position to occupy, and it's easy to keep other elements, people and ideas, at a distance. This career turn kicked into high gear with the release of Oceans 11, 2001. Critic Roger Ebert described his subsequent output every once in a while, perhaps as an exercise in humility, Steven Soderbergh makes a truly inexplicable film, a film so amateurish that only the professionalism of some of the actors makes it watchable. It's a kind of film where you need the director telling you what he meant to do and what went wrong and how the actors screwed up and how there was no money for retakes, etc., Actor Michael Douglas was born on September the 25th, 1944, in New Brunswick, New Jersey, USA. In 1968, Michael graduated with a B.A. in Dramatic Art from the University of California. He then went out into the world as an actor. No pressure, he was the son of actor Kirk Douglas, after all. In 1969, he formed his own production company, Big Stick Productions Limited. In 1971, Kirk gave his son the film rights to One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Michael helped turn it into a hit film in 1975. As an actor, Michael was kept busy in The Streets of San Francisco TV series. That ended in 1976. This finish allowed Michael to look for film work. He found it in the Three Mile Island incident, which he turned into The China Syndrome, 1979, in which he both starred and produced. He hit the 80s running alongside old pal Danny DeVito in Romancing the Stone, 1984. He continued interchanging the roles of producer and director throughout his career, saying, I love the fact that on one side with acting, you can be a child. Acting is wonderful for its innocence and the fun. On the other side, producing is fun for all the adult kinds of things you do. You deal in business, you deal with the creative forces. I think if you can remember the reason you got involved with it in the first place and try to keep that impulsive, instinctive feeling, even when you're being beaten down or exhausted or waylaid, you'll be successful. Actor Rob Lowe was born on March the 17th, 1964, in Charlottesville, Virginia, USA. Rob lost the hearing in one ear while a toddler due to undiagnosed mumps. He began his professional career at the age of 12 by phoning every theater in his district to find one that needed a child actor. In 1979, he took his first TV role. Rob's film breakthrough came with The Outsiders, 1984. The movie offers rolled in until that 1988 speed bump in his career. He had adopted a party-hearty lifestyle in his teens that led to his downfall with some very unwise decisions. By 1990, the seriousness of his position finally sank into the haze, and he signed himself up for an alcohol rehabilitation program to rehabilitate his career. This has turned his life around, but it was a slow and steady climb back into the limelight. Death rode side-saddle to the apocalypse. On. January the 15th. Nagisa Oshima, the Japanese director, born 1932. February the 18th, Cheiko Hondo, the Japanese actor, born 1963. September the 2nd, Makoto Moroi, the Japanese composer, born 1927. Next episode takes us to France in 1898. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. Put on your sailor suit and try out your naughtiest French accent. Available now, Movie Chronicles 2020. Buy from your nearest e-store now. Now? Now! What are you waiting for? Don't forget to become a Patreon or Buzzsprout supporter before all the pod people go to seed. And next week, remember, Oh, I do like to be beside the seaside. I do like to be beside the sea.